We are closing out what has been an eight-part series on the Old Testament book of Kings. And I imagine that when we started out on this journey, at least this was true for me, I'm thinking to myself, gosh, do we really want to do this? I mean, what in the world could be relevant from a a storyline that dates back almost 3,000 years? And then I found myself, and as I hope you've found yourself, ambushed time and time and again by how unbelievably relevant uh, this book is for our times and for our own personal lives. I hope that's your experience today as we close out the series. To set the context for what we're about to read, however, I want, you to, invite, I want to invite you to imagine something you've probably seen on television. It's the last day of the administration of a United States president. That individual is shaking hands at the White House, uh, greeting the faithful staff. They've lined up to watch uh, this person who has served the country uh, leaving the place. The president makes his way out across the lawn. He's heading towards Marine One, the chopper that will whisk him away into the sky and off into history. And by his side is, is, is the successor, the person that is going to be taking up the post. And the individual is walking along, smiling as well, but secretly thinking, oh my gosh, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> I sure hope I can take the weight of this particular job. And uh, this is something of the scene. This is something of the moment that we're walking into when we open God's word today to 2 Kings chapter 2 at verse 1. You may find it helpful to open in your Bible to that passage. I'm going to walk through it verse by verse with you here today. It is the last day of the administration of one of the greatest leaders that ever lived, one of the most famous figures of history. It's the last day of the administration of Elijah, one of the great prophets of ancient times. And he is making his way along uh, towards the very close of this uh, part of his, or this whole, whole of his life, and he's being accompanied by his apprentice and successor, Elisha. And if you weren't here last week to hear the story of Elisha and why we should care about the Elishas in our life, please go back and listen to every one of the three messages that were given last week by three of our different preaching team. Tara Beth spoke, Steve Noble spoke, Charlie Browning spoke, and these were amazing messages that I, 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 I listened to every one of them. They were just that helpful. But as they're making their way across the, um, the lawn, in a sense, towards the chopper, um, we're, we're reminded of another moment in history, a moment even larger than this one, the moment when the disciples of Jesus, who had been apprentices to the ultimate leader, the ultimate master, are also journeying with him as he is about to ascend into heaven, and they're just hanging on his every word. And this is the continuity of history that we're meeting in this text. The Bible goes on and says this, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, he's going up in the whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. I want to pause just there because like so many times we've found during this series, they're, they're in the little details of this story, there's just tremendous insight and application for us. I'm not sure this is what the text in this verse was primarily intending to convey, but it certainly is uh, relevant to us. 
Elijah and Elisha, we're told, are on their way from Gilgal. Now, to the ancient Jews, Gilgal was an important place. Gilgal was that spot right along the banks of the Jordan River where the Israelites first put their feet down in the promised land. They had traveled a long while through the wilderness. For 40 years and more, they had traveled and wandered through the wilderness. Finally, they had crossed over the Jordan River, and they set their feet on the dry land, and they look ahead into the land of promise. They can see the pathway, the chance to expand all of the horizons of their life and to live into the, the good things that God has promised to them. Gilgal is synonymous with the spot from which we move to take hold of the next part of the great adventure of life with God. Have you ever stood in Gilgal yourself? Can you think of a a, a Gilgal place in your life? This past week, I talked with several different people who had been to Gilgal. Uh, Individuals who who stood in a place where after a long and challenging journey before them, they they, they got to a place where they could see that finally the good times were about to open up for them. They were going to expand their opportunities and their influence. The fruit of their labors would be fully enjoyed. They could see this marvelous path out in front of them. And like Elisha and Elijah, they were intently making their way from Gilgal towards that future. When the whirlwind came. When the storm came, when the whipping winds of change came, in each of these stories that I acquainted myself with this week, it had been a, a very adverse medical diagnosis that, that, the, that was the, will, the whirlwind's form. It took them on a dramatically different journey than they had planned for themselves. I'm mindful that it's not just medical illness that, that can do this. The whirlwind can take the form of a divorce. It, it can be the death of a spouse. Uh, it, it may be a crisis with one of your kids. It could be a crisis with one of your parents. It, it could be a, a challenge with, with your vocational life. It can be a, a financial collapse. It can be a pandemic. It can be all kinds of things. The whirlwind comes in many different forms. And the hard truth of life is, or at least the sober truth of life is that when we are intently going on our way, God sometimes takes us his way, takes us a different way. By saying his way, I don't necessarily mean that God, you know, purposely pulls us off our path. Um, I'm not always able to discern, I'm not smart enough to discern whether some of the things in my life or the life of people that I know and love that suddenly divert us in a direction that doesn't seem good at all, I don't always know, is that God's active will? Is he purposely sending that? Or is that part of God's permissive will? Does he just allow that because he knows what he could do with it anyway, even though it might not be what he would hope, first and foremost? God's active will, God's permissive will. We don't always know what's going on, but as Christians, followers of Jesus, readers of the Bible, we believe that there is a sovereign hand, a sovereign providence, a purpose that overarches it all, seeking to ultimately bring together in a wonderful way his good intentions for the world and for our lives.
I've met a lot of whirlwind in my life. I, I, my life has been defined by the whirlwind in many ways. I, I, I came to Christ in a whirlwind. I, I, I came to decide I was supposed to be a pastor in the whirlwind. I, I've seen it so many times over the course of my life. It had not been the, for the whirlwind, actually. My life would have been so much different than it is. I meet weekly in the lives of, of the congregation and the community around us, as probably you do. Uh, all kinds of people dealing with the incredible tumult of, of change and of, of unanticipated alteration of, of course. And, I th- and I've come to believe that when the whirlwind strikes us, we can do one of two things. We have at least two options, maybe more, but two that I think of. First, we can abandon all hope. <laughs> we can spit into the wind. We can rage against the heavens. We can just self-anesthetize ourselves against the horror of the thing that has torn apart the plan that we had. I had a very sober, painful conversation with somebody this week uh, over the phone who, as they were spitting into the wind and raging and just hating the whirlwind. And the other alternative we have in the face of these things is to exercise an even deeper faith than we had before the storm came. We can say, oh God, oh God, wow, I would not have chosen this. I would never have picked this. I'm not sure what you are doing in this, but I'm gonna choose to trust that you see something I don't, that you know something that I don't, that you can do things that I wouldn't, but that are still good. And so I'm just gonna ask you, God, to help me hang on, to help me trust to help me take the next step, to to use this experience somehow to shape my heart, make it a little bit more like your heart, or to give me a greater heart for other people going through traumatic changes of various kinds. God, I'm gonna trust that you will somehow send out ripples for good that my well-laid plans wouldn't have accomplished. We have the choice to despair or to trust And I would say that when the whirlwind comes, you and I are invited to exercise a bolder and more beautiful faith than before. Can you do that? Can you dare to trust and believe that there is nothing that could or will happen to you that God will not somehow weave into his ultimately good plans for you and for the people you care about? Can you imagine that that which uh, is bringing Uh, You pain, that which he is either actively sending upon you or passively allowing in your life is somehow very important to a matrix of people and of purposes that are so vast that when one day you're finally given the ability to see how it all fits together. And that's what the Bible says. One day there will be that day when we will know fully, even as we are fully known now. Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, When that day comes, we're just gonna drop to our knees and we're gonna say, wow, I get it. I see it. I understand it now. It makes sense. Oh, how good. I sometimes think that's that's gonna occupy a lot of our time in eternity. We're gonna be walking around just kind of having that reaction again and again. Wow, now I see. That's so good. Thank you, God. As a pastor for nearly 40 years, I've been quietly amazed 
by the surprising good I've seen that comes from whirlwinds. I never say to somebody in the whirlwind, oh, it's gonna be fine. It's not the time to give that message. You just wanna hug them. You just wanna stand with people when we're caught up in the whirlwind. But I've quietly observed over time the good that has so often come. That's not to say that I don't still have huge questions. There are a lot of unfinished stories that, I, that, I, that I'd love one day to have the ability to just be with God and say, Lord, help me get this one. I just couldn't get it when I was alive. But I've seen so many ripples of grace flowing from tragedy and loss that have made me inclined to believe that there is a magnificent tide of providence at work that's on the move, in which you and I are caught up, and that one day we are going to just stand marveling on the distant shore to which that tide takes us, and we'll say, it is good. It is good. So the story goes on from here. I just gotten through verse one. Boy, we haven't even hit verse two yet. There's, so hang in there with me. Verse two says, Elijah said to Elisha, stay here. The Lord has sent me to Bethel. I want you to notice the way this passage cascades because this passage is gonna be repeated in the next verses, almost verbatim. Elijah said to Elisha again, stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. Movement one, Isaiah said, Elijah says stay. Movement two, Elisha says, no, I'm, stay, I'm going with you. And movement three, they go. So they went down to Bethel. They went down to Bethel. The company of the prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, do you know that the Lord is going to take your master, Elijah, from you today? That's the third movement, fourth movement. Yes, I know, Elisha replied. So be quiet. So be quiet. I love this. I think this is a, again, there's a lot in here. And the next three verses in the text repeat the exact same conversation as Elijah states his intention to go from Gilgal to Bethel, from Bethel to Jericho, from Jericho to Jordan. And in each case, Elijah essentially says to Elisha, hey, I'm good. We can part now. I've given you your commission. You got this. You're gonna be great. And if you were with us last week, you know that that's true. Elisha will go on to perform like twice as many miracles as Elijah did. Elisha will go on to be an amazingly influential spiritual leader. And Elijah has some sense of this. And so he says, hey, you don't need to hang with me. I, I, I'm called, I gotta finish my job. I'm, I'm called to go over here and there, there, and then there. But you don't need to stay with me. You can just go on your journey. And in every one of those instances, Elisha responds the same way, with a vow. As surely as the Lord lives, I will not leave you. Now that statement, as surely as the Lord lives, is a familiar vow in the Old Testament. Some of God's most courageous servants use that vow when they're making a big commitment. Gideon does it. Ruth does it. David does it. When they're really serious about doing something, they will use those terms to sort of add punctuation to their commitment they're giving. And basically what the vow is saying is, because God is, 
as surely as the Lord lives. Because God is, and God is the way he is, I'm committed to doing this. In other words, they're saying my ultimate vision and focus is who God is and the way he is, and that drives my commitments in life. Now, there's a life lesson in this for us, I think. God's greatest servants are are singularly directed by God's presence and his character. They are driven by his presence and character above all else. They are not primarily driven by the poles. They are not driven primarily by the focus groups. They are not driven primarily by what people are saying on social media or what their social cohort, their, their, their familiar cohort is saying or doing. They are centered on God. He's number one for them. And, and they derive their commitments from his character and his presence. The question I want to ask is, Is that true for you? Is that true for me? Is that our focus? Is that that what informs our commitments in life? I think there's a reason that that every single time Elijah says, hey, I'm going over here, I'm going my way, you can go your way, that Elisha gives, gives the answer, I will not leave you, and he says it three times. I think the reason he does that is because Elisha understands Elijah is one of those singularly devoted people. He's unusual. He's not a regular person of his age. He is so focused on God and God's will and God's desires, and he derives his commitments in life from that. And I think that Elisha wants to soak that up from him. I think that Elisha wants to take every bit of that into him with every pore of his body for as long as he can, and he knows that the time to absorb Elijah's unusual spirit is passing by, that the clock is ticking. In fact, the text suggests that God has revealed to Elisha and all of the other prophets of Israel that Elijah will soon be gone, that the chopper's about to take off. And and, and the prophets, when they get this information, are are just obsessed with it. I mean, it's it's putting them all a Twitter in three separate cities. um, They they, they come rushing out to say, hey, hey, do you know that we're gonna lose him? We're gonna lose him, we're gonna lose him. And Elijah, or rather Elisha, responds very tellingly. He says, let's stop talking about losing Elijah. That's what I think he's saying here. Let's stop talking about losing Elijah. Let's just be quiet and pay attention to him. Let's keep soaking up his life as long as we have him. And the next verses suggest that the other prophets took Elisha's counsel. We read in verse 7, 50 men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance facing the place where Elijah and Elisha were, where they'd stopped at the River Jordan. Now they're just studying. They're just taking notes. They're just trying to learn. Elijah took his cloak and he rolled it up and he struck the water of the river Jordan with it. And the water divided to the right and to the left. And the two of them crossed over on dry ground. Now this is an amazing miracle story. 
And it should sound familiar. Because the other great prophet of the Old Testament, Moses, did the same thing. He, only it was his staff. And he struck his staff in the ground and the waters of the Red Sea parted to the right and to the left. And the people of Israel were able to tro- cross over on dry land and, and escape bondage in, in Egypt. And then later on, when they reached the edge of the Jordan, having wandered through the wilderness for so many years, again, Moses did something very similar. Actually, Joshua, in this case, did something very similar. And the, and the waters parted, and the people of God were able to cross over. And all of these events, they're pointing to an even greater event. They're, they're foreshadowing, they're helping us recognize the meaning, the significance of the moment when God will plant a different staff in the ground, a cross-shaped one. And Jesus will give his life upon the cross out of love for the world and open up a way through the waters of sin and death for anybody who trusts in him to walk into a new era of promise in their life. I hope you've walked through the passageway. It's still open. It has never closed. Come home. Give your life to Jesus. Say to God, I will make you first. You will be the focus. Your presence and your character is going to drive all my commitments from this moment on. I'm going with you from here. It feels important and urgent to me that we think about these things. It it feels important for us to be seeking the way and the way maker in our times. I know you haven't missed the fact that we've been through another hotly contested election season. We're going to have a lot more of this in the days to come. Uh, There's going to continue to be this pattern in human society for our lives that, that, that the best way to a better future will be getting everybody to finally agree on policies. I'm not optimistic about that. I'm growing less optimistic about that over time. I think it would be so much better if we could get more and more people agreeing on a person. I want you to think of a triangle. I've used this image before. But I want you to think of us living down at the base of that triangle. And we got some people that are over on the right edge of the triangle and some over on the left edge of the triangle. Uh, and they look at things from a very different vantage point. And, and it's really hard for them to come together. Right? But if you could get people from both sides looking up the, the edges of the pyramid, so to speak, at the apex and focusing their eyes upon Jesus and his character and his presence and his goodness. And if you could get people just starting to take little steps in the direction of Jesus, what would that accomplish? We would find ourselves so much closer together, so much closer that we might actually begin to agree on more and more of the practical ways of resolving the issues of our time. 900 years before the historical Jesus, 900 years before that baby was born in Bethlehem, and we'll talk about that story very shortly, 
Somehow Elijah understood the character of that one at the apex of all life. He understood that character and had devoted his life to that character and to to trying to lead his nation back towards that character. In fact, I would suggest he understood so much about the basic heart of God that we meet perfectly in the person of Jesus that when Jesus, many, many years later, is actually born and grows up and gathers disciples around him and then decides to show just a, a precious, privileged few of them, James, John, Peter, to show them his absolute glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah's there. Jesus brings Elijah and Moses there with him because Elijah got it. Moses got it, the character of God, and were singularly devoted to him. In a a world of golden calves and Asherah poles and bales of various kinds, these two individuals were clear on that focus at the apex of the triangle. Well, at the center of every culture, at the center of every culture is a cult. Um, In fact, the word culture comes from the word cult. And when I say cult, I'm not thinking, you know, Jim Jones in that sense. Oh, I suppose that was a cult. Uh, Cult's a neutral term, actually. It's not a negative term. It's a neutral term. It just simply means a, a place of intense belief and devotion of really white-hot, intense belief and, and devotion. Um, Ahab and Jezebel were promoting a cult of a certain kind in Israel's life. It was the, co- the cult of, of, of individualism, tribal gods. It was the cult of, of materialism, of, of, of a lot of sexual license, a lot of sensual pleasure is sort of the ultimate focus of life. They were, they were driving towards that apex and they were bringing a lot of people along with them towards that particular vision of life. Elijah, on the other hand, had a very different vision. We've already talked about who Elijah was following and he was trying to get people to move in that direction. What I would like to ask you is, what's your cult? What's the... What's the deep belief system, the the devotion at the center of your life? Who or what has taken the throne? What's sitting on the iron throne of your life? Is it your political party? Is it your personal preferences? Is it some dream of, of, of comfort and shelter? And, and maybe more to the point, who are the mentors and models that you're learning that from, that are, that are blazing the trail to that destination for you? Who are the mentors and models that, are, that you are passionately pursuing and modeling your life after and trying to get close to because they exemplify the beliefs and the devotion that you want to have? As surely as the Lord lives, I would say, Could you invest more of yourself in becoming like Jesus and seeking his kingdom than in following these other cults? Could you do that? Could I do that? Elisha and Elijah illuminate this important choice for us. Verse 9 reads, When they had crossed over the river Jordan, Elijah said to Elisha, 
Tell me what I can do for you before I'm taken from you. I think Elijah's figured out, this guy's not leaving me. (laughs) He seems to want something. (laughs) So he turns to Elijah and says, you know, what is it? What do you need? Jesus, by the way, asked the same question of people. What is it that you want me to do for you? And, And Elisha is suddenly presented with this amazing moment. It's like the genie is standing there saying, I'll do it for you. What's the wish? Solomon once had this. The King Solomon of Israel was invited to, what's your wish? And he said, I want wisdom. I want wisdom to govern these unruly people. (laughs) How many presidents have probably prayed for that? Uh, But Elisha's response is fascinating. He says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. That's what I want, boss. I want a double portion of what you've got in you. You've asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Because what he's basically saying is, it took a lot of years to craft this in me. Yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, by that I I, I take it to mean, in other words, if you keep a relentless focus on learning from me all the way to the very end, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. I think we have a problem with relentless focus in our age. (laughs) I I think we have a hard hard time following God and Jesus to the end. I think we get really distracted, you know? There's all these voices out there. There's all these uh, attractions out there. Everything's glittering this way and clamoring this way, and our anxieties drive us over these things. When God is saying to us, Jesus is saying to us, stay with me, keep your focus on me, all the way to the end. And I'll give you that spirit. I'll fill you with the spirit you need. Of whose spirit would you like to inherit a double portion? Who are the earthly people? Let's seem to carry that spirit. Last week, we asked the very important question, who is your Elisha? Who's the person you're pouring into, the younger person that you're investing into, that you're passing the mantle to, that you're, you're spotting, you're telling them what you're seeing in them and lifting them up? Again, go back and listen to those great messages. you get some practical guidance for that. Today, I want to turn it and say, who's your Elijah? Who's the human being or human beings? You can have more than one Elijah whose spirit you'd love to have a double portion of. When I think about that question for myself, it's not hard to answer. In fact, I'm just, I could go on. I'm not gonna go on too much longer, but I would say this. I would love to have a double portion of my wife Amy's self-discipline. Seriously. I mean, I have been with her for a lot of years. I am just amazed by my partner's self-discipline. I see her getting up in the morning and working out and doing exercises late at night when I just want to be in bed. (laughs) In the 34 years I have been married to this woman, she has not missed flossing one night. (laughs) Seriously. My dentist is praying, give Dan a double portion of that spirit. 
She's run multiple marathons. She's done an, an Ironman. I mean, in her late 50s. I don't know how that's possible because she's only in her 40s now. But uh, she, she reads religiously. She devotes herself with staggering discipline and passion to getting better at every single pursuit that she takes on. I would love a double portion of her spirit or self-discipline. I would love to have a double portion of my friend Carl's courage. I, I could name a, a bunch of people here who have exercised courage that blows me away. But, but I'll speak of Carl for a moment. I have seen him over many, many years, and we've known each other for 25 of them, stand up against the powers of this world in remarkable ways. Carl was a senior executive of two major multinational corporations. Corporations that sometimes drove in a direction that was not good for people. And Carl stood up in boardrooms and was the lone voice saying, I think we should go this way instead. I've seen him when, when, when one of those corporations laid off a huge part of his, uh, his, in fact, his entire staff. I've watched as Carl stepped up and then courageously fought for every one of those employees to help them get a, a better landing spot or a second chance. Um, I've admired Carl's uh, courage in speaking the truth in love to people. He goes the last 10% in telling people what nobody else is telling them, yet that's that last 10% that's blocking them from success. And I see as so lovingly but firmly he courageously steps into that place and shares the truth. Two years ago, he suffered a debilitating, paralyzing stroke. It would have just sent anybody else that I can think of into total despair. And yet Carl chose to, to put his faith, a greater, a bolder, a more beautiful faith in God. And the way he has managed his life and ministered to other people in the last two years, maybe his finest hour. It's turned the heads of atheists and of people who don't really do the religion thing to wonder, how do I get that kind of spirit in me? I'd be a better person if I could inherit a double portion of my brother Jeff's humility. Uh, my brother Jeff is a, a, is a very accomplished guy. <laughs> He's a summa cum laude graduate from Yale. He's a Fulbright scholar. Uh, he... he was the chief counsel for the oil for food investigation under the Volcker, Volcker uh, committee. Uh, he uh, was United States, former United States Supreme Court clerk. Uh, he's married to another one of them. <laughs> um, he's a federal judge today, a presidentially appointed judge today. And, and you would never know this if I wasn't telling you this. Because if you met him at a cocktail party, it would never come up. He would, he would be, he'd be mainly interested in talking about you, your story. What's going on with you? What motivates you? What, are you? what are you reading? What interests you? I would benefit from a double portion of his, his humility. I pray to be given a double portion of the love that I meet in our mission partner, Mama Maggie Gobron. Some of you have met her and you get what I'm talking about. She is absolutely the most amazing person in any room she ever enters. She's this, this diminutive quiet, lovely, gentle human being who spends hours in prayer every morning just asking God to fill her up with his spirit so that when she goes out into the world, she can be like Jesus to people. And she is. 
She left behind a, a prestigious job as a, as a leading academic at a university in Cairo and has devoted her life to caring for the poorest children, kids that live on, on, on literally the stinking trash heaps who walk with bare feet on glass every single day. And she's there washing their feet and giving them medical care and, and starting trade schools and establishing summer camps and uh, mentoring ministries that are lifting up hundreds of thousands of kids. She's been three times nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. But it's, it's because of the love that comes from her heart. Ten minutes with, with Maggie and you think, okay, that's what Jesus is like. That's why people drop nets and followed him. I would pray to be given the double portion of the grace I've seen in my my friend and trustee colleague, Ricardo. Uh, He's absorbed the cost of being a black man in a world that doesn't always go easy on black men, in a world that often has undervalued his remarkable gifts. Ricardo is a brilliant chemist. He's a stunning, stunning mechanical fixer of things. He's a thoughtful Bible scholar. And, And too few people have the wit to recognize who they're dealing with when he's in their presence. Yet he shows this quiet kindness and this persevering patience with people of far less ability. He reminds me of Jesus too. So let me ask the question your way. Who are your models and mentors? Who, 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 who are the people who define the cult, the devotion, the character, the spirit, the cult that you want the culture of your life to, to, to grow out from. Who are those people? Who are the Elijahs in your life? Uh, people that, that, that will so influence you that one day maybe some Elisha will come along and see you and say, oh, I want to be like that one. Can, I, can we spend more time together? Can I ask you some questions? How are you parsing the particulars of the practices and the principles of that Elijah, that model's life? How are you really breaking it down? And how are you applying those principles and practices in your own life? And, and, and can you start doing that more today? Could you start that today? As they were walking along and talking together, verse 11 says, suddenly, a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared. The whirlwind comes quickly. It comes suddenly. Suddenly, these things appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha saw this and cried out, My father! My father! And Elisha saw him no more. And then he took hold of his garment and he just tore it in two in grief. One day, I pray, people will grieve my departure that way. (laughs) Not for the reasons that might sound. Not for the reasons that might sound. They will grieve it. As I pray, they'll grieve yours. Because of the spirit that they saw in each of us. Because you and I were determined to seek 
and to inherit a double portion of a spirit like Elijah, which is to say like Jesus, which is to say like his most faithful followers in every age. Because at the end of the day, at the end of the day, our lives personally and our lives corporately, socially, our society depend so heavily on the choices, the focus of our life. We still live in the era of Ahab and Jezebel today. Make no mistake about it. They are as popular and powerful as they ever were 3,000 years ago. But by the models and the mentors that you and I choose, by what we really bow down to, what we're really serving each and every day we go out into this world, you and I get to decide who will take the throne. Who will have the throne of our lives and of the people who will look to us for our spiritual influence? Friends, this is the word of the Lord. This has been now for eight weeks. The incredible word of God. Thanks be to him.